Well, turn with me back to Luke chapter 4, this passage, verses 1 to 13. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And may we hear you speaking clearly to us today. May this be the uh, the bread of life. May Christ be as to the bread of life, to us the bread of life that he is. And may we feed by faith on him as we hear your word and then later as we gather around the table. In his name we pray. Amen. Last week we saw how Jesus began to destroy the devil's work. Uh, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And he began to defeat the devil and break his power by resisting his temptations with the help of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And we saw last week how Jesus did this, uh, identifying uh, with us in our humanity, in our humanity as the Son of Adam, as well as the Son of God. So that in union with him, Jesus did this so that in union with him, united to him by faith, we might share in his victory. He's the second Adam, the last Adam come to do what the first Adam failed to do. So that we, by faith, might share in his victory and enjoy the spoils of victory, just as the Israelites enjoyed the spoils of David's victory over Goliath, even though the Israelites had done nothing to defeat Goliath. Well, what are those spoils of victory, those spoils of Jesus Christ's victory that Christians enjoy? Well, among many wonderful things we saw last week from Romans 5, 19, that through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Romans 5, verse 90. That is that those who put their faith in Christ and are united to him by faith come to share in his righteousness his perfect obedience and righteousness. And that of, that, of course, means there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because sinners like you and me are justified fully before a holy and righteous God through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And then there's also this as another spoil of victory. Uh, again, in the same chapter in Romans 5, we saw this last week, Romans 5, 17. If by the trespass of the one man, the breaking of the law by the one man, Adam, death reigned, death ruled through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness through Christ, how much more will they reign in life? So death no longer reigns, but in fact, we reign in life through Christ and through righteousness of Jesus. But what does it mean? What does that actually mean for us to reign in life through Jesus Christ? In particular, and this is what we're going to spend our time looking at today, what does it mean for us when we face the devil's temptations? How does the victory of Jesus for us work itself out in us and through us when we ourselves are being tempted. Now, before we look at how Jesus' victory has worked out in our lives, we need to get the spade out. Uh, we need to prepare the ground 
before we begin to build on it. We need to clear the kitchen services, surfaces before we begin to bake. So there are three things here that we're doing by way of groundwork, clearing the ground before we build on it. Firstly, spiritual conflict is a part of normal Christian life. Spiritual conflict is a part of normal Christian life. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we see that it was when Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and when he was following the leading of the Spirit that he was led into the wilderness and the place of temptation. Spiritual conflict is part of a normal Christian life. As Tom Jones might say, it's not unusual. And notice also, and I'm sure if you've been a Christian for any time, you will know this, that spiritual attack often follows hot on the heels of a spiritual blessing or a spiritual high. Jesus has just come from what could be higher than having the God of heaven say, you are my son whom I love and the spirit poured out on you and then into conflict. And I'm sure some of the younger folks even will know that coming back from SU camp or SU holiday, the devil will attack when you're tired. And Jesus too was tired and hungry in the wilderness. And we know that at the end of a service, we need to be careful. We can be blessed in a service around the Lord's table and the devil can come in a conversation to tempt us. So that's the first bit of groundwork to be cleared. Uh, the spiritual conflict is a part of normal Christian life. Secondly, uh, the devil, though defeated by Christ, continues to attack Christians. The devil, though defeated by Christ, continues to attack Christians. Uh, we've been looking in our home groups and our connect groups at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Paul begins that marvelous letter by saying how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Where? In the heavenly realms. God has blessed us with everything in Christ in the heavenly realms. And yet, right at the end of the letter, when he's talking about spiritual conflict, take your stand against the devil's schemes, Ephesians 6 verse 11, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly realms. In the heavenly realms. So in the very same place where we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ is precisely where the conflict takes place, and the devil, though defeated by Christ, continues to attack Christians. Thirdly, resisting the devil's temptation is neither a form of legalism nor a result of us being passive, of us doing nothing, okay? Resisting the devil's temptation is neither a form of legalism nor a result of us being passive. What do I mean by that? Well, take the, the first point under that legalism. It's not a form of legalism. Sinclair Ferguson has pointed out rightly that it is those who belong to the kingdom of God. It is Christian people, followers of Jesus, those whom Sinclair describes as beatitude people from Matthew 5. It is those same people who are urged to deal rigorously with sin, to cut off or pluck out whatever is a source of temptation. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. If your eye causes you to sin or leads you into sin, what does Jesus say? He says, pluck it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, be ruthless with it. So, 
To do what the Word of God tells us to do as Christians is not legalism, but obedience. It's obedience. So resisting the devil's temptation is neither a form of legalism, but nor is it a result of us being passive. Being passive, I mean, you know, the kind of thing that says, well, let go and let God. That's not biblical Christianity. Learning to resist temptation is part of what it means to grow like Jesus. It is part of our sanctification. And that is what sanctification is. It's us being conformed into the likeness of Jesus. And again, to quote Sinclair, he says, Sanctification is by no means a mystical experience in which holiness is ours effortlessly. God gives increase in holiness by engaging our minds, our wills, our emotions, our actions. We are involved in the process. And that is why the Bible's teaching on sanctification appears in both the indicative God is doing something, that God is promising something, both the indicative and the imperative, the command. You do something. And he gives the example from Leviticus 20, verses 7 and 8, which say, I, the Lord, sanctify you. I, the Lord, do this. I, the Lord, sanctify you. And then in the very next verse, um, or the other verse will say, sanctify yourselves. And some of the translations will Translate that, uh, I, the Lord, make you holy or consecrate yourselves. But the same words there. But you get the point, the indicative, the promise is there. I, the Lord, sanctify you. And in the very same breath, almost the imperative, sanctify yourselves. Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. And that's an important principle, isn't it? God's promise and God's command go hand in hand. And when we look at what the Bible says about temptation, when we look at what the Bible teaches about temptation, that is exactly the pattern we find. We find the command, we find the promise and the command going hand in hand. Here's the promise, for example, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That's God's promise. That's God's promise. When we are tempted, he will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But when we are tempted, he will also provide a way out, an exit, so that you can endure it. Sometimes it might be a literal exit. The door out of the place where you need to leave, if it's somewhere physical that you're being tempted. But what about the command? That's the promise. The command we find in James chapter 4, verse 7, among others. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. That's the command. Resist the devil. Something for us to do. And again, graciously, it goes with a promise, doesn't it? And he will flee from you. And we need both the promise and the command. But notice this, the promise of God is the horse which pulls the cart of the obedience to the command. And make sure you put the horse in front of the cart to use the promise of God. Father, you have promised that you will not tempt me beyond what I can bear. Father, you have promised 
that when I am tempted, you will also provide a way out. Therefore, Father, help me to resist temptation. Help me to find that way out. So those are the three uh, bits of ground clearing or clearing the kitchen surfaces, if you like. Spiritual conflict is part of a normal Christian life. Secondly, the devil, though defeated by Christ, continues to attack Christians. And thirdly, resisting temptation is neither a form of legalism, nor is it a result of us being passive. There is something for us to do now. Now we're ready to build, as Matthew is doing here with the Lego. We are ready to build. It's okay. So the question is, how can Jesus' victory for us, please don't forget that as the most important thing, Jesus' victory for us, we rest in his righteousness, not ours by faith. But how can his victory for us in his humanity work itself out in us, in our humanity, when we face the devil's temptations? Well, let's try and answer that question by looking at the three temptations in turn from sorry, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. First of all, Luke 4, verses 1 to 4. Jesus is hungry uh, after 40 days of being tempted. Verse 2 says he was being tempted. The, imp the implication is there that Jesus was tempted all during the 40 days he was in the wilderness. <clears throat> then we have these temptations at the end. The devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now, we looked at this partly last week, so let me be brief here. Jesus is hungry. He's physically weak. He is vulnerable in his humanity and but Jesus will know he is vulnerable, and that's a lesson for us to learn too, isn't it? Know, know when you're vulnerable to temptation. Sometimes people say about, you know, we can be hangry. You know, you know what that is? When you get hungry, you get angry at the same time. Well, if you're hungry, be, be aware that you might get hangry. Okay. But the temptation to Jesus here is, why should he put up with these circumstances? Okay, he's in the wilderness, he's hungry, he's the son of God. Why should he, the son of God, put up with these circumstances? Turn this stone into bread if you are the son of God. The devil, the devil knows that Jesus is the son of God. He's saying, if you're the son of God, then do something about it. Change your circumstances. Make life easier. And what the devil is tempting Jesus to do is to not trust God. To not trust God to not trust God to provide for him in the wilderness. The devil had previously successfully tempted the children of Israel to cry out against God, to grumble against God and against Moses when they were hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. The temptation was to cry out against God. Be, be careful, it's okay to cry out to God. Of course, it's, a, it's the right thing to do to cry out to God, Lord, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. If I don't have food or water, I'm going to die. But the Israelites were not just crying out to God. They were grumbling against God. Why have you brought us here? Take us back to the flesh pots of Egypt. But Jesus knows that true faith waits for God to fulfill his promises. True faith knows and waits for God to fulfill his promises. Faith will resist the temptation to not trust God. Faith knows that living by the word of God 
is more important than making a God out of our own needs. I'll say that again because it's important. Faith knows that living by the word of God is more important than making a God out of our needs. Because of Jesus, because of Jesus, we too are able, armed with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ who triumphed in his humanity in the wilderness and armed with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, we too are able to say to the devil in the middle of our wilderness and hunger, whether it be physical hunger, whether it be sexual or relational hunger, whether it be emotional hunger, whether it be financial hunger, because of Jesus, we too can say, we will live by every mouth that comes from the, we will live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We will wait for God. We will wait for God. Looking at the second temptation in verses 5 to 8, the devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. I will give you all their authority and glory and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, again quoting from Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone, serve him only. If the first temptation is a temptation to not trust God for our needs, the second temptation is one of worldliness. A temptation to believe the devil's lies that he can give to us or the world can give to us what God, in this case, what God has promised. But the devil will do it easily and painlessly if only we will worship him. Now, as we saw last week, the devil does have some power and authority in this fallen world. He's known as the prince of the world. Jesus himself called him that, but it is a limited power, a limited authority under God. And even in verse 6, do you notice <laughs> even the devil acknowledges that what he's promising to give has been given to him. It has been given to me. He doesn't have it, even though he's lying about the extent of his power and authority. But more significantly than that, he is promising to give Jesus what Jesus has already been promised by his Father. The Father has already promised Jesus. Psalm 2, verse 8, ask me, says the Father, the king, to the anointed son, his king. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. The son of man who approaches the ancient of days and has led into his presence, he was given. It's a picture of the ascension of Jesus following his death and resurrection. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. You see that that is what is already ahead of Jesus, promise from God to be given authority and glory and splendor and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language would worship. This is already Jesus' destiny. So what then is the temptation? The temptation is to take the devil's shortcut to this glory. It is to wear the crown and avoid the cross. The devil is tempting Jesus to turn his face away from Jerusalem, not to set his face towards it. He is tempting Jesus with a painless, crossless road to glory. 
But Jesus knows why he came to this world. He came to lay down his life for us on the cross, for us and our salvation. That's why the Father sent him. And Jesus knows that true faith will worship the true God rather than, rather than possess or rather than grasp by sinful means what this world has to offer or the glory that this world has to offer. So Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. And you see, that means because of Jesus, we too are armed, armed with the Spirit of Christ who triumphed in his humanity in the wilderness. And armed with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, we too in Christ can resist the temptation, which at times is a very strong temptation, to think that we can share in the glory of Christ without sharing in the sufferings of Christ. To resist the temptation that the devil can give us all the joy in the world, here and now, if only we will follow him rather than Jesus. To resist the temptation that the gifts of money and sex and power will be ours painlessly if only we bow down and worship him. To resist the temptation that we will make better progress in our career in our job, in our work. We will have more friends in our playground. We'll have more influence as a church or a denomination if we will only play by the world's rules rather than God's. You see, it's a very relevant modern-day temptation. If you keep quiet in the workplace, I will make sure you're promoted. If you keep quiet in the playground, I will make sure you have lots of friends. Well, the good news is, and we read earlier last week from Hebrews 4, I'm not going to quote that again, but there's so many good passages in Hebrews about the humanity of Jesus for us. Hebrews 2 verse 18 tells us that because Jesus himself suffered when he was being tempted, he suffered when he was being tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to help us. And because Jesus succeeded in his suffering and in resisting temptation, he is able to help us succeed too in resisting temptation. He is able to help us worship the Lord our God and to serve him alone. So remember that. Remember that the next time the devil comes whispering his attractive lies in your ear. What about the third temptation, verses 9 to 12? For the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, possibly the pinnacle of the temple itself or at the southeast corner of the temple. There was a point, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, talks about it, where people could not stand there without getting dizzy went down perhaps to a, a, a drop of 450 feet down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. The devil led Jesus to that. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For, and now the devil quotes scripture. He quotes the Bible. Quoting from Psalm 91, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. 
They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Imagine a relationship where a girl, you can change it the other way around if you want, okay? But imagine a relationship where a girl is constantly putting herself in danger so that her boyfriend is forced to prove his love for her. She lies down on the railway line as the 1235 from Edinburgh comes round the bend. Or perhaps on a romantic boat trip, the boy says, I love you. And his girlfriend immediately jumps overboard and says, prove it. I mean, that would be a very strange kind of relationship. Very stressful. Um, I suspect it would not last very long. I suspect eventually the boy would say, uh, the next time she jumps overboard, okay, bye. But it's pretty clear, you could, and there are relationships like this. I know this can kind of happen in relationships, but it's pretty clear that if the girl is constantly testing her boyfriend's love for her, the girl does not trust her boyfriend or his love for her. Isn't that right? And in a similar way, the devil tries to get Jesus to do something that will force God's hand to prove his love. He quotes from Scripture. It's not 100% accurately, by the way. The, 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 the quotation says to guard you carefully in all your ways. And that would include, of course, the devil's temptations. But uh, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't get into a debate about the accuracy of the quotation. And perhaps there's something for us to learn there, too. He doesn't get into the nitty gritty. He answers with a clear word from the Lord. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. As David Gooding has said, God is not on probation. God is not on probation. Now, folks, this temptation is a subtle one, isn't it? Uh, not just because the devil uses the word of God, but on the surface, it looks, it looks as if the devil is inviting Jesus to trust God. It seems to be inviting Jesus to trust God, but in fact, it is tempting Jesus to test God and not trust him. And true faith, true faith will trust God rather than force him to prove his love. Now, what would be an up-to-date application of that? Well, one very obvious one, it's very rare, thankfully, but it does happen, particularly in some parts of the United States, are churches where they handle snakes in West Virginia and the Appalachian Mountains, the snake-handling churches. And they do that on the basis of the Bible. Mark chapter 16, verse 18, you will handle snakes, you will drink poison that will not affect you. But what they are doing is wrong when they handle snakes in church. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. What about a more common application? What about our prayers? What about our prayers? Do we expect God to always answer our prayers in the way we want? It's a kind of test for God to prove his love rather than an opportunity for us to trust his love. To trust him, whatever way he answers. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, the good news is, because of Jesus who did not put the Lord his God to the test, because of Jesus who worshipped and served God alone, 
because of Jesus who lived by every word that came from God's mouth, because of Jesus who did not run away from Jerusalem, but entered it boldly, publicly, openly on Palm Sunday, because of Jesus who sweat drops of blood as he prayed, not my will but yours be done, because of Jesus who was crowned with glory through the suffering of the cross, because of Jesus who triumphed in his humanity over the devil in the wilderness and in the garden, armed with the Holy Spirit, armed with the Word of God, because of him, we too, armed with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that has seen the victory Jesus won in his humanity, the Holy Spirit arms us, and with the, arm, with the Word of God, we can reign in life and resist the devil's temptations. And even particularly, perhaps the temptation that it's useless to resist the devil's temptations. It's not. Christ has defeated the devil for us. Hallelujah. And by his spirit and by the word of God, God has equipped us. Well, God has promised us God has commanded us, and by the abundant provision of his grace for us in Jesus Christ, God has equipped us. So help us, our God and our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. But Father, we also thank you for all that you have done in us through his, <clears throat> through his life and death and resurrection and ascension. Thank you, Father, that it is the spirit of the obedient, crucified and risen Christ that is available for us to lean on. It is the same sword of the same spirit, the word of God that we have access to. And Father, we thank you too, as we'll think later this week, for the gift of prayer that we can watch and pray that we might not fall into temptation. Thank you for your son again, and thank you. Thank you for his death for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.